and we'll follow up with you. So we're thankful for that. Okay, so we're going to be in John chapter 17. If you want to turn there, we'll get to that in just a moment. But we have been in the thick of a series on prayer. And for the last six weeks, we've been talking through the Lord's Prayer, and we wrapped that up last week. And it was really an awesome opportunity for us to look very, uh, with like almost like a microscopic lens at the different elements of the Lord's Prayer. If you remember, that was Jesus's prayer when the disciples prayed. How do we pray? Teach us to pray. And that's how he prayed. So we wrapped that up, and that ended last week, but we're not done looking at prayer. In fact, this week, we're going to look at the first part of a very special prayer that Jesus himself prays when his time on earth is coming to a close. And so as we do this, we're going to cover this. Uh, I'm going to come back to it a few times over the, the next month. Uh, as we do this and other sermons on prayer, I just want you to know that our goal is not that we know more about prayer. I've said this every week. I'll continue to say it. Rather, it's that we believe in the power of prayer. That's why we're teaching on prayer. We're not educating ourselves on prayer. We're teaching ourselves to believe in the power of prayer. And when I believe something, it changes the way I live and act, does it not? When you believe something, right, you can know a lot of things, but when you believe it, it changes your life. And so that's what we want. We want this series, the prayer series, to be something that changes your life. So my prayer is this, that as Jesus prays, that it would move you. It would move you even in the slightest to believe more and more in prayer. So let's get into the context of this prayer. John 17, the first part of it is this long prayer that Jesus prays. It's actually spectacular, which I'll talk about that in a sec. But the context is important too. The setting is the upper room. If you know that story, it's the last moments that Jesus had with his disciples before he's arrested, and we know what happens from there. And they had just finished eating their last meal together. These dynamics are really important because it shows that Jesus knows that his time on earth with his disciples is drawing to a close. In fact, in John 16, we see Jesus' final teaching. And he shares with them, he says these words in John 16, he says this, I have told you these things, this is the end of that teaching, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those are the final words of his teaching, and Jesus knows that the world is going to be a difficult place for everyone, and in particular, those of us who follow Jesus, because we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And being in a world that's broken means that we will have trouble. Can anyone say amen to the fact that there will be trouble? <laughs> we can just agree on that, right? But Jesus' encouragement is this. He says, take heart. Why does he say that? Why does he tell the disciples to take heart? Because he has overcome the world. Our reality is not one where evil rules our lives, but where this, we are the citizens of the kingdom of God, and God is our highest authority. That's why he says, take heart, because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. But Jesus, knowing that prayer is incredibly important and powerful, he follows that teaching. He gives the teaching, a wonderful teaching with a great capstone, take heart, I have overcome the world, but he knows he needs to pray. 
And so this prayer is awesome because it's the most lengthy, probably the only truly detailed prayer that Jesus prays that we have recorded in Scripture. It says that Jesus often in Scripture withdrew to pray, but we really don't have examples other than this one of what he actually prayed about. Because remember, the Lord's prayer is a response. He's teaching them something. But this is Jesus's authentic prayer. It's so amazing because it shows what his heart, under the pressure of what he's about to experience, his death on a cross and resurrection and all that that entails, it shows what he's really feeling and what he really desires. Have you ever noticed that when you pray with someone, hopefully you've prayed with somebody else, have you ever noticed that when you pray with them, you really get to know what's on their heart, right? Like you can have a lot of conversation and it can be light or heavy or whatever, but when you pray with somebody, you ask them to pray with you, hey, what can I pray for? The thing that is most heavy on their heart comes out, right? The Gospels are amazing because we see so much of Jesus' teaching, which shows God's heart for humanity and his design for us to flourish. But this passage in John 17 gives us a unique look into what Jesus was thinking and feeling, knowing that he was going to be arrested, crucified, and eventually resurrected and returned to his rightful place in heaven. So this prayer is a vulnerable look into the heart of Jesus. With the weight of humanity on his shoulders, this is what he prays. So let's read today. We're going to go through John 17, 1 through 10. It's not the entire prayer, but it's the section we're going to cover today. I want to read this together in its entirety, and then we'll look at it sort of verse by verse. This is what it says. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those of you. To those have, I'm sorry, over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, we're actually going to stop there. We're not going to go to 10. We'll get to the rest of the prayer in future weeks, but this is what Jesus starts with. And the prayer opens with something very interesting. It opens by noting Jesus's Posture. It says right there in 17.1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now, this was the traditional posture of prayer in Jesus's day. And it's obviously very different, right, than our traditional posture of prayer. So why would the author take time to record Jesus's posture? That's an interesting thing for someone to write. Like knowing that the prayer is coming is a big deal, but he took time to record the posture. Well, The posture that Jesus took was meant to communicate two things, hope and confidence. In our modern world, we bow our heads and close our eyes, right? That's what we always say, bow your heads, close your eyes, right? That's our traditional posture now. And it's an effort, really, for us to focus. There's so many distractions and so many things going on that, you know, it's easy for us to just close our eyes and bow our heads, and that's really important. But Jesus 
illustrating a confidence, a posture of confidence in the Father shows us that we too can have hope in the work that Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross. Sometimes when you think about your posture, when we're sad or things are gloomy, what does your posture typically look like, right? Kind of hunched over, head down. But that was not the posture that Jesus took. He looked up, he was hopeful, he was confident, which is why the author recorded this. He wanted us to know that this was not a sad, gloomy moment for Jesus, even though it was weighty. He was very full of confidence, very full of hope in what God was going to accomplish in the coming days. Have you ever watched a child when they're young, when they want something from their parent? A kid can be running around, a little kid can be running around, totally ignoring every command, right? Many of you parents of young kids, you understand this. It can be annoying, ignoring everything. You're like, hey, don't do that. Hey, hey, you know, and they're running around totally ignoring you until what? Until they need something, right? When they need something, who do they look to? They look to the parent. There can be even a bunch of other adults in the room, and they'll zip right by them. I've tried this. My nephew, Mateo, he's sweet, but he just ignores me. He's like crying, asking for his mom. I'm trying to give her a break. I'm like, what do you need? What do you need? I want my mommy, right? That was a charitable impression too, okay? But what they do is is they seek out their parent because they know that their greatest hope of getting what they need or what they want is mom or dad, right? So this prayer posture that Jesus took is like that. In a moment, he was meant to show us his confidence in the work of the Father, to show us a hopeful confidence that what he's about to ask for can only be done by God. And it will be done by God. So my prayer is that in the middle of our difficult moments, as we continue our struggle in life, and as we continue to lift things up in prayer to God, the things that matter most to us, that we would look up to God, a posture of confidence, a posture of hope, and that all of our trials and all of our frustrations and all of our pain, regardless of those experiences, we can take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world, and he has confidence in the Father, and we, too, can pray with confidence when we pray. So then Jesus opens, he has the posture, and then he opens his prayer with a very powerful line. 17 verse 2 says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I thought this was a really great opportunity. I know we've already said Happy Father's Day and addressed it, but I want to take this moment, given the words in that verse to pray for the fathers and grandfathers in this room. We need strong fathers. We need strong grandfathers. And they cannot do it on their own. They cannot do it on their own. 1 Timothy 2 says this in verse 1. It reminds us the importance of praying for all of the dads. He says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we're going to pray for the dads and the grandfathers. And I want to recognize that not everybody in here has a great relationship with a father. I know that. And some of our fathers have gone to be with Jesus, and there is an entire spectrum 
of things in relationship to our fathers. But with that in mind, I want to invite you, regardless of that situation for you personally, to pray for the fathers in this room. Because the fathers in this room are very important. Just as Timothy said, we make intercession for all people. That includes the fathers here today. So with classic tradition, will you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray for the fathers? God, we do not take this moment lightly. And this is not a filler. As we look at the way that Jesus honored his father, God, I pray that we too would honor our fathers, our grandfathers, the fathers in our life, the dads of our children. God, we lift them up. They cannot do it on their own. So we pray and intercede on their behalf that you would give them the confidence. And for all the dads who are part of this church and the ones who are connected to this church that couldn't be here today, I pray for them. I pray for them to be strong, to be soft, to be receptive to their children and their spouses, to receive your spirit and your correction where there needs to be correction, and to receive your confidence and your hope where there needs to be confidence and hope. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to talk about legacy for a moment. How often, if ever, do you consider the legacy that you will leave when your time on earth is finished? And when you consider that, what are you most concerned about being remembered for? I want you to actually take a moment, just 10 seconds, and think about that. What do you want to be remembered for the most? I know I have my thoughts. I know I have the things that I want to be remembered for. What we see here, though, in that verse is we see Jesus, when it comes to the final hours of his life on earth, that he is concerned primarily with one thing, glorifying God. That's his big concern. Now, as you considered your legacy and the things that you want to leave, how much of your ideal legacy was concerned with glorifying God? You probably thought about this idea, but was it your primary concern? Being transparent, this was a convicting idea for me the entire week. I'm going to let you guys in behind the curtain. When I preach something or when somebody else preaches something, whether it's Brandon or Jessica or Chris or Kyle, when they preach something, they encounter it all week, if not longer, as they come into something. So when you run across something like this where it causes you to think, I am not getting that right totally, <laughs> right? That was not my primary concern. When I do that exercise, it's not always the thing that comes to me. That hits me all week. But you know what? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful if that was something that convicted you in this very moment because our convictions are God's gentle reminder that we need to connect our hearts and our minds with God's good design. That's so good. So when I do this exercise, when I think to myself, what do I want that to be? Of course, I know that I'm going to preach this sermon and I'm going to preach it in this context, but I can think back to many of times where I've said, I want to be remembered for this. 
And very few times have I said, for glorifying God. <laughs> right? And so I get it. That's, I get that. But those convictions, when I think about that, when I reflect on that reality in my life, those convictions are God's sweet, subtle reminder that we need to connect our hearts and our minds with God's good design. And the primary, we, primary way we do that is through scripture and prayer. And so I ask the question again, how concerned are you with glorifying God? In an honest moment with a heavy heart and his confidence high in the Father, knowing that he was about to literally go through hell, Jesus' primary concern was to glorify the Father. And this very reminder encouraged me and challenged me all week long, right? I know that each of us set to achieve many noble goals. All of you are incredible people. I know each of you. You're amazing. And as you set out to accomplish more goals in the next week, there's going to be a lot of things that cross your mind, but do any of them cause you to wonder how are you going to glorify God, this is the most important of all of your intentions. As spectacular as some of the things you will set out to do this week are, your most important intention, as modeled by Jesus, is to glorify God. And you don't even need like a major event in your life for that to happen. I'm not talking about you nail something at work and then you give them the Tim Tebow kneel down. Right? That's not, I'm not talking about that. I mean, you can do it. That'd be epic. Riley, you're going to accomplish a great fitting this week, and I want you to give him the Tim Tebow. Okay, bro? Flex those guns. But for the rest of us who are not Riley, as you interact with your family, consider this. How do you glorify God? As you go into work, consider, how might I glorify God? As you plan your finances, consider, how can I glorify God? Whatever's in front of you, consider, how can I glorify God? That was Jesus's primary concern. But then he continues his prayer with verse two, and it's spectacular as well. He says, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So Jesus moves on to pray about the power that he has been given over who? All people. Now, I've heard and seen God work in some pretty miraculous ways. Some of us in this room actually have those testimonies that books are written about, right? Some of us have that. Some people have those. And praise God that he reaches in to the darkest, heaviest moments in our lives, and he pulls us back to him, right? I know these stories in my head. I've heard them. I've heard them from people personally. I've read about them. I have all of these accounts. And I even know the stories from scripture that have incredible weight and implications in this matter. I think about the woman at the well in John 4. She's minding her own business, getting water from the community well, when Jesus strikes up a conversation. He asks her for a drink. He calls out her sin, and then he makes a missionary out of her. 
In that one conversation, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, and then he crosses these social boundaries. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, and then he makes a missionary out of her with absolutely no formal training. That is a wild account of God's power, right? That's a wild account of what God can do. That story and all the other stories in my head, and yet, functionally, I think and act as if some people are just too far away from God. As if I'm not enough for God to work through. The woman at the well, he made a missionary out of her. It said that all the people, or many of the people in her village believed because of her testimony. And if you read the story, you know it's a wild testimony. And yet I think that I'm just not enough functionally. I know what I know, but in my heart, I just, I don't get there sometimes. The disconnect between what I know and what I believe at times honestly is embarrassing. And that's why a prayer like this one is so encouraging. Because it says that Jesus has been given authority over all people, meaning that no person is too far beyond the reach of God's love and saving grace. That's in all bold in my notes, because I want to remember that. I want to remember no person is beyond that. And when Jesus prays that line, he's concerned that we do not write off a single soul. Rather, we pray for them over and over and over. That's what Jesus is encouraging. That's how Jesus feels. In an honest moment, he wants people to know that no one is too far. No one can outrun the grace and love of God. And so what should we pray for? Well, Jesus addresses that in the very next verse. He says, in 17, verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you, have, whom you have sent. So we see Jesus's primary concern in verse one is that he glorifies God. And then his secondary concern is that as many people as possible experience eternal life, which leads to his third request that people would know what eternal life actually is. One of my favorite movies of all time is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anybody like that movie in here? Some of, some of you are a little too young. Okay, Tof, I knew I had you, bro. I got one person in my camp. If you don't remember the movie, it culminates with a race to find the Holy Grail, this cup that they believe Jesus himself used at the Last Supper in this moment that we're reading about right now. And if you know how that wraps up, you know that it doesn't go well for the bad guys. And I won't get too far into the movie, but one of the things I love about that account as I reflect on it, as a kid, I just loved it because of the action. As I reflect on it now, I think what was happening, even unbeknownst to the director or the writer or whoever was in charge of making sure that this message was happening, is that it was a fictional account of people's hopeful realities. And what I mean by that is is that so many people throughout history have been concerned with the idea and have searched near and far for anything to extend the length and quality of their life. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get this eternal life. 
We've had all types of things. We've, we've got uh, religion, science, uh, food trends, exercise plans. So many things in our life are aimed at how do we extend the length and quality of our life, right? They're answering the question, what is the key to a long and lasting life? And Jesus knew this. He prayed that that too would be the answer to the question. When he prays in 17.3, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else today, eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. That's all there is to it. You know God. But there's a specific knowing that Jesus is talking about in this passage. It's not the type of knowing that you study about God, theology. That's not the knowing that he's using here. In the original language, the knowing that he's describing is the type of knowing that comes through experiencing something. Right Now, you know this type of knowing very well because you've probably used at least once, maybe even this week, the phrase, you just had to be there. You ever use that phrase? You ever try to tell somebody a funny story like, oh, this was so funny, and you're describing it, and you get this? Oh, okay. And you're like, ah, you had to be there, right? You had to experience it. The truth is that describing the way you you experience God is a very similar battle. The way that Jesus prays is that people would actually experience God because it's the only way they will really know God the way that Jesus is praying. Over the years, my prayers as a pastor have changed. I used to pray, no joke, I used to pray, God, help our gatherings to go well so that people will like our church and come back. Okay, right? That's a fine prayer. Not really. It's a terrible prayer. Instead, now, this is what I pray. God, allow people to experience you in a way that I've experienced you so that their lives are changed. Whether you like me or not is not my primary concern, although I hope you do. I think I'm a likable guy. I want you to know God in the type of way where you experience him. And I do want people to have a nice time at Foundation Church, but I would never trade that for the opportunity to have that life-altering experience with the God of the universe. I will just never trade that. In fact, so much of our energy as a leadership team is built to, or is put into building environments that are physical, relational, spiritual, where God can interrupt the niceness of our lives so that we may truly experience him. That's our goal. Having a nice time is not what leads to eternal life. Experiencing God in a deep and personal way, that is what Jesus prayed for, and that's what we should pray for. May we be a church that prays for everyone to experience God the way that Jesus prayed for in John 17. So Jesus wraps up this section, these first five verses, with one last big request. This is how we're going to close out our time. Jesus has finished the work that he set out to do on earth. And now he wants to return to the most important thing to him, being present with the Father. 
He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus so deeply desires to be in the presence of the Father that it's the only reason, the only reason that that whole thing was interrupted was because of us, for our benefit. Jesus was happily enjoying being in the presence with God the Father, but he knew that something was required of him. That's the story of Jesus' life. But he wanted, to re- he wanted to return. The thing that he wanted most was to accomplish what he was set out to do and then return to the presence of God. And while the work he came to do on earth was finished, because all authority was given to him, the work that he passed on to us, that work's not done yet, right? In Jesus, our legacy is meant to carry his legacy into the places and spaces that we go. And that work of helping people know and experience God That's what we're set out to do. That's the work that he left to us. In the second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul explains this legacy work so perfectly. I'm going to read it to you. It's sort of a lengthy passage. It'll be on the screen. But I just couldn't pass up the moment to describe what we're praying for, the type of thing that we're praying to accomplish as we carry on the legacy of Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verses 11 through 21. I want you to just hear the words of what it means to carry on this legacy work. Verse 11 says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope that it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as Jesus desired all people to experience God, 
to know God, we too are called to desire that for all people. And guess what? We are the reconcilers that God has sent to bring people into that space. Can you believe that? Can you believe that God has entrusted you to represent Jesus just as Jesus represented the Father on earth? As he prayed to go back to the Father, he didn't just leave with nothing. He left with us in mind. We're the plan. As it says right there, we are the ones with the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors, and he is making his appeal through us, you and I. And so our legacy is founded on Jesus' legacy. We now carry the message of reconciliation. We now carry the opportunity to help people know Jesus, rather to experience Jesus to experience the Father. And just like Jesus' ministry, our ministry is fueled with prayer. That's what it is. Jesus taught and taught and taught. He even taught how to pray. He gets to the end of this moment with his best friends, and then he goes and prays. And he prays this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I can't wait to get into the rest of it, but I wanted to stop right there because I think it speaks to the power of what Jesus was getting at. God be glorified, and all people know and experience God through the work of Jesus. And so if you wondered, huh, I wonder if we're going to pray today. You guessed it. We're going to pray. Here's the three things we're going to pray for today as we pray just before we get into singing a couple more songs and glorifying God with our song. I want us to pray first and foremost, Jesus's primary concern was glorifying God, that our lives would glorify God. You're not going to get it right every time. Thank goodness for God's grace, right? But you have a great opportunity to glorify God. And I think he's pressing some buttons in some people in here about how they can do that. Number two, for the salvation that we, of those who we know and love who are far from Jesus. We're going to pray for them. We're going to intercede on their behalf. And then three, that this church, that foundation church, would be a place where people could experience and know God. That's what we want. So if you do me a favor, will you stand up with me? I'm going to pray for us. If during this time of prayer and song, if you want somebody else to pray for, both Mike and Karen are going to be in the back. You can go pray with them. But I want us to lift up those three things. So I'm going to pray for us. And then through our time of singing, if you would continue to lift those things up, to have in mind the people who need to know Jesus in your life, to have in mind how you might glorify God with whatever he set you to do this week, and that this church would be a place where people could experience God in a powerful way. So Lord, we ask you, as we reflect on this prayer that Jesus prayed in a moment of heaviness where he knows his time on earth is about to end and he's about to go through an excruciating experience on our behalf, he prays. And he prays with hopeful confidence. He prays that you would be glorified. So God, I pray that you would help us know how 
to glorify you more, that we would take chances on the things you're putting in our hearts to make much of you a story, a gesture, a testimony, whatever it may be, God. I pray that we would glorify you, that that would be our primary concern. And then, God, we all know people who are far from you, who wear the, the, the sin that they bear, and more excruciatingly, they wear the shame of that and the guilt of that. So, God, I pray that you would free them from that, that they would not be kept in that, that they would not wear that shame or that guilt, God, that they would find the freedom that only you can offer. So we commit to praying for those people, God, that they would know you, God, and that this place, this church, would be a place where people can experience you in a real way, that they can experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ through community and through prayer and through scripture and through relationship. God, that we would pray to know you more, that we would not know about you, but we would truly experience you with our time together and apart. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.